going to be starting a new series next week called The Gospel of Luke, The Life of Jesus and the Teachings of Jesus Christ. I'm really excited about that. I've never preached all the way through Luke. I've done the other Gospels, but never Luke, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but today, my message is actually a type of preamble to that. Okay? It's a preamble to the series that I'm going to be doing the first part of this year. Um, and I'll be teaching and preaching through the whole gospel, just like I did the book of Acts. How many of you are here for the book of Acts? Uh, so many people said, oh my gosh, I learned so much. And I hope <laughs> that this is going to be like that too. Because Luke and Acts were actually written by the same person. So um, he's very meticulous in what he does, and we'll talk about that more next week. But today is kind of a, a preamble to that. And just like the preamble of the United States Constitution, just like that is an introductory statement to the purposes and to the guiding principles contained, contained therein in our Constitution, I'm going to lay out some fundamental purposes and guiding principles today that we need to understand before we look at the life and teachings of Jesus as they have been recorded in Luke's Gospel account. And I want you to know that I'm going to be challenging you with some purposes and principles today that might leave you walking out of here going, I can't do that. I don't think I can do that. You know, you might do that, all right? But hopefully that won't be the case. Hopefully you're going to walk out of here saying, I can do that. I will do that by God's grace. That's my goal today, that you'll walk out of here like that. So I'm going to be using three passages of Scripture to teach some important purposes and guiding principles for the Christian faith, for the Christian faith, and for those of us who have chosen to follow him, okay, those of us who have chosen to follow him. So I'm going to start with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, if you've got your Bibles with you, um, please open them up, I know some of our youth are here, they've, they've been given study Bibles, if you've got your Bibles, open up to the book of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it's going to be on the screen behind me though as well. It says this, it says, therefore, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable. And perfect. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how holy is your name. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Let it be done in our hearts as it is in your hearts. And God, I pray that these words of scripture that I just read and the other two that I'm going to be reading, that they fall upon our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us uh, insight, give us illumination, give us ears to hear what you want us to know. God, so many times it's very tempting for us to listen to sermons for the person next to us rather than listening to the sermon for ourselves. Help us to hear in your word a message for us today, one that would challenge us, one that would encourage us, and one that would rally us to be more of what you've called us to be, to be transformed, transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray in your name, Jesus, and all God's people can say, Amen. Amen. 
So here, in that passage, the Apostle Paul urges us to do something that I think is very extreme. Okay? Very extreme. He urges us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God. But you'll be glad to know it's not a dead sacrifice. <laughs> it's a living sacrifice, which when you think about it is an oxymoron, right? We all know what oxymoron is. It's sort of a contradiction of terms like jumbo shrimp or that tastes awfully good, right? Or, gee, that's kind of bittersweet. Or, same difference, but here's my favorite, an original copy, right? Right? So here you go, living sacrifice, right? It's a living sacrifice. We normally think of a sacrifice as something being dead, especially in the Hebrew understanding, right? In the temple and the sacrifices that were offered there. But think about it for a second. Think about this for a second. To provide a breakfast of ham and eggs, who makes the bigger sacrifice? The chicken or the pig? Anybody? Of course, it's the pig. You know, because the eggs, you know. But to have the ham, it's... Yeah. Or else you limp a lot, I guess. I guess I could do that. But it's obviously the pig. Paul is using the description of living sacrifice to tell us to give it all. That's what he's saying. Give it all. Don't be halfway about it. Give it every part of your body, mind, and soul, and life to God. Don't hold anything back from him. Be a living sacrifice offered up holy and acceptable to God because Jesus has made us holy and acceptable to God. Then he says this next. He says, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, it's worship when we do that. <laughs> it's worship when we do that. This is worship, okay, but that is also worship. And all through the Old Testament, he says, oh, you know, I hear your sacrifice, and you just, but what I want is for you to do justice. I want you to do that. I'll be, you know, give our lives to him. That's worship. It's an act of worship to God when we give ourselves to him, body, mind, and soul, every day. A living sacrifice. It's very similar to Matthew Kelly's description. You remember the Holy Moments book? And I talked about that for a couple weeks. With his description and definition of a holy moment, he says, you open yourself to God. You open yourself to God. You make yourself available to him. You set aside your personal preference and your self-interest. And you do what you prayerfully believe that God is calling you to do in that moment. Living sacrifice is, is like that, that kind of a life. Being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as a spiritual act of your worship. Paul adds on to the meaning of that verse in the next verse, Romans 12, verse 2. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable, and perfect. Two key words there, conformed and transformed, right? Pretty important in that verse. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. That word there literally means to be pressed into a mold, to be shaped into the likeness of the world. Like when we used to play with Play-Doh and push it down into the mold, you know, I still do it because I have grandchildren, right? Just like that. Or when you make the jello salad, right, and you pour it into the, what, the jello mold or a bundt cake, right? 
That's what that word means, to be conformed, put into a mold. He says, and by the world, he means the godless, sinful culture of the time. And also, for us, the godless, sinful culture of our time. Because it is. And it surrounds all of us. Don't be conformed to that. That's what he's saying to us. Don't be conformed to that. Instead, be transformed by the renewing or the making new of your mind. The Greek word that is used there in the original text is a word that we still use in the English language today. In fact, they think it's English, but it's actually a Koine Greek word. It's metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. You probably remember it from 10th grade biology, right? When you talked about cocoons and uh, chrysalises and butterflies transforming, right? It means change of form, becoming something different. Metamorphosis is a transformation. You've heard me say this before, lots of times I think, that you cannot become a Christian and remain the same. How many of you have heard me say that? It's true. You cannot become a Christian and remain the same. You will be different in some way. You will be different in a very positive way because why? Well, because we follow Jesus and we follow his teachings. That's why we're going to be different. You can't be the same and do that. And that transformation begins and continues as our minds are renewed by Jesus, his life, his words, and the activity of the Holy Spirit. You can't forget that. We're not in this alone. The Holy Spirit is in us. That's what makes it possible, right? That's what makes it possible. Then Romans 12, 2 reveals the purpose of that, why we're going to be renewed in our minds. He says, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the intended purpose is that the will or the desire of God will be revealed in his church, which is you and me. And us, the saints, we, the church, prove or reveal God's desires for humanity. The values he wants us to have, the morality he wants us to have, and the truth he wants us to live by. We become vehicles and conduits for that. Not in a prideful way, not in a, oh, I'm better than you. No. In a humble way, by the grace of God. Because that's what we've, been, that's what we've received. It's grace. It's grace. So the principles and the purposes that we need to grasp and understand in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, are those. Present yourself to God. Present yourself to God in, uh, to be a living sacrifice and live for him. Don't let the world shape you and conform you into its mold, its values, its morals. Okay? But instead, instead of that, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Minds with Jesus and his teachings and the Holy Spirit so that others will see God's values and morals and truth in you and in your families and in your children. Become a living sacrifice, a living revelation of God's desire for all of humanity. That's what Paul's talking about. Listen as I read the second passage that I've chosen for today. It's a really great passage. It's a really great passage. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. It says this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, talking about the holy of holies, God's presence, 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together like we are today, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So this passage is a powerful and personal message to us. Yes, to the Hebrews, right? But to believers, to followers of Christ, it's a message to the church. And it starts off reminding us of who we are in Jesus. It says we can confidently enter the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. And that's the only reason we can do that. Jesus is our high priest. Ah, but Jesus is also the sacrifice. He's the sacrifice. He made this new and living way with God possible. He inaugurated it for us. He got this whole thing going. And because of all of that, the writer of Hebrews lays out three consecutive directives, starting with three verbs in the subjunctive mood. And you can recognize a subjunctive mood because it usually says, let us do this or let us do that. So verse 22 is, let us draw near. Verse 23 is, let us hold fast. Verse 24 is, let us consider. So verse 22 says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, let us draw near to God and to each other totally confident that we're accepted by God, right? Totally confident with full assurance of faith. We don't need to wonder or worry whether we've been accepted by God because Jesus already took care of that, right? So draw near. Don't be afraid. Draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And then verse 23 says this. Not let us draw near, but it says let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You see, Jesus is the one who promised. Jesus is the one who is faithful. He's proved that in every way. And Jesus is the hope. The hope. He's our hope. Let's hold fast. Hold tightly to that, to that, the confession of our hope. Don't doubt because he's faithful. This is also echoed Elsewhere in Hebrews, in chapter 6, verse 19, this verse is actually tattooed on one of my son's left shoulders. <laughs> it says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure, you hear that, and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. People wonder about that. What is that, like a wedding veil? What is it with the veil? The veil refers to the temple in Jerusalem or the tabernacle in the wilderness, the veil is what separated us from God's presence and the holy of holies. The veil is what ripped when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. You see, we aren't separated from the presence of God anymore, are we? I tell you that all the time. Okay? 
the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, is with us and is in us. That's what Jesus did. So he says, let us hold fast. Don't turn a loose. <laughs> Every which way but loose. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And all God's people said, he's faithful. It's not as much about you as it is about him. Us trusting him. This is what I want to get to. I've been, been waiting to get to this. Verse 24, because it talks about the importance of the church. Remember I said you were what this morning? You're important. You're the church. It talks about the importance of the church, the importance of us, the saints, gathering together to mature and grow in faith so that the kingdom of God can come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're doing here today. Listen to verse 24 and 25. Verse 24 and 25 of what I just read. He says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another onto love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Did you hear that? <laughs> it's pretty important, right? The church is important. The gathering together is important. Stimulating one another onto love and good deeds is important. Our assembling together is important. Encouraging one another is important. The church is important. What we do here on Sunday mornings and Thursday nights and Friday mornings and all of those, it's, it's all very important. It's, it's an activity of the church. One of the very first things that happened on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, you know one of the very first things that happened? Believers began to faithfully gather together daily daily. Listen as I read Acts chapter 2 verses 41 and 42. This is right after Peter preached, okay, right after he preached his message in Jerusalem, okay. It says, so then those who had received his word, what he just preached, and were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually, listen, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What does that sound like? That sounds like church, yeah. Well, that sounds like church, right? And it's supposed to. That's what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ. That's what the first believers did immediately. Immediately. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is also Jesus' teaching. That's what they're teaching, right? To fellowship, which is Christian community, us looking after each other, take care of each other, loving each other. To the breaking of bread, which is remembering Jesus in the Lord's Supper and in our services and in our teaching, and to prayer. That's the church. That's what we do, or at least part of what we do, because it's important. And it's actually more than important. It's essential. It's essential. The Christian faith Listen, the Christian faith will fail in its mission without the church. The church universal, as in everywhere, but also the local church, us, Good News Church, the Father's House, the Vineyard, First Baptist. Okay. 
New Life Presbyterian Church, Community Methodist Church, Heritage Church. The local church is so important. The church is the main expression of faith in the world. Did you ever think about that? People drive by a church, what do you think? Oh, there's a church. What's that say? Well, they believe in Jesus, right? And that's the church, that's just the church building I'm talking about, right? The church is the main catalyst and purveyor of Christianity in the world. To use pandemic language, the church is a super spreader, right? The church is a super spreader event. For what? For faith. For faith. Faith in Jesus. I was just praying with Joseph this morning. I hope that people look at our church and they go, I want some of that. Right? Whatever he's drinking, I'll take that, right? Because they see Jesus in us, right? They say, I want some of that. I want some of that. The church is us assembling together to worship, learn, and grow as followers of Christ. Christ, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which is through the teachings of Jesus and Scripture and the apostles by the Holy Spirit. The first thing a person should do when they become a Christian is find a church. I tell everybody that. Somebody comes, oh, I just, I'm a young Christian. Find a church and become part of it. Find a church and become part of it. That's not just my opinion. That's scripture. I just read it. It says, let us consider how to stimulate one another onto love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. And the day that's drawing near is when Jesus returns. Okay, this, this thing that we're doing right now is not going to go on forever and ever. There's going to be an end to it. Right? Jesus is going to return. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This is a timeline. We're on a timeline. And the church is part of all of that as the day draws near. And then in Acts, I told you, what did they do? They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoting themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the sacraments, baptism, right? And then prayer, devoting themselves to prayer. It's important. We need that. We need each other. We need each other. Being a Christian without being a part of a church is like playing football all by yourself in your backyard. Now, I got to tell you something. That's not football. It's not even fun. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. We're meant to be on a team, aren't we? We're meant to be part of each other's like a, like a football player. We're supposed to be a family, a community of faith and Christ followers working together to raise our children in the faith, right? So that they don't get pulled away or drifted away. We're supposed to help each other to volunteer in kids' church and go to Bible study and grow and help become a strong church, a community of faith supporting each other, encouraging each other, loving one another, and reminding one another to stay the course. Stay the course and keep the faith. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. We're on a timeline. We need to be a part of a church. We need each other. It's important. I remember um, toward the end of the pandemic, I'm not going to mention names or anything, but someone who
who, from our church, you know, I, I said, hey, really missed you. You know, we're, we're meeting up at church again. He says, yeah. He said, yeah. I said, well, you know, we, we kind of got out of the habit. He said, at first we stopped going to church, and then we even stopped every, doing the streaming every other week. And then, well, we just found something else to do with our Sundays. And this wasn't a Christer. This wasn't a Christmas and Easter. This was an every week Christian. So that can happen. That can happen, as is the habit of some. And we need each other. So that doesn't happen to us and to our kids. Church is important. Back in the 90s when I was an associate pastor at New Life Presbyterian Church working with Pastor Bill, one of my favorite people, one of our cars was on its last leg. It was a Pontiac Ventura, 76. David probably remembers it. <laughs> right? And my, it, was, it was on its last legs. And my neighbor, Al Gantz, he says, hey, I've got this 10-year-old Toyota pickup truck. I've taken good care of it, changed the oils, four on the floor, great little truck. I said, I'll, I'll sell it to you for $2,000. I said, had a nice topper on the back. David probably remembers that. Some of y'all remember it. It was great. So I had one problem. I didn't have the money. So I, I called dad, right? I called dad and I said, hey, dad, I said, you know, this is my situation. I found this truck. It's my neighbor. I think it's a good deal. Would you mind? Could you loan me $2,000 and I'll pay you back $100 a month? He said, sure. Sure, I'll do that. Just come, come by on Saturday or something and, and pick up the check. I'll do that. And so I went over, and, and sure enough, the check was on the table there, and we visited for a while and visited um, with my mom and my dad. And then I got ready to leave. I said, okay. So I went to get the check, and he comes out there, and then he slides this little piece of paper over next to the thing. And he says, yeah. He says, here's your check. He says, just read that and sign that. I said, Dad, I'm your son. What are you talking about? I'm going to pay you back. You don't worry about me. He says, oh, I know. I know you'll pay me back. He says, I trust you. He says, I just don't trust our memories. He says, it's just good business, son. Right? He says, if, if you remember it one way and I remember it another way, well, we just pull it out and say, well, look at this. And dad even made the contract better. He made the contract better. I didn't have to pay him $100 every month. You know, I could miss a month or two as long as I paid it off within three years. Right? And we talked about that and explained that. So he says, it's just good business. It's all right there. In black, white, it's good when we write things down because we don't, what? Forget. Yeah, we don't forget. And I'm so glad that Luke, Luke wrote it down. Luke wrote it down for us. It was very meticulous. Matthew and Mark and John wrote it down. I'm so glad that Peter and Paul and James wrote it down so that there's no misunderstanding. And we can go back and reread it and reread it and look at it because we forget. We forget what it means what Paul meant when he said a living sacrifice. You see, Good News Church, our church is a biblical church. We are devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, right? And to the breaking of bread and baptism and prayer. We do that because it's essential. We need all of those things. We need all of those reminders and the foundation of the Bible to keep us on track, to stay the course, and to keep the faith. We need it because we're human, right? Just 120 years ago, biblical morality and values were the norm in this country, in the United States of America. The morality of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, and all of those things were the morality of our culture. 
basically. And not everyone was a Christian. Not everyone was even religious. But we all agreed on where the lines were and what was right and what was wrong, what was perverted and what was not and whatever. And I'm sure you've noticed <laughs> that is no longer the case, right? Right? That's all I have to say. That is no longer the case. Over the years, the morality and the values of our country have been slipping and sliding, kind of like the Paul Simon song, slip sliding away, slip sliding away. Come on. The further the nearer your destination, the more you... Yeah, you know this song. That's us. But to be quite honest, today is a little bit more like loosey-goosey. I'm not sure what that means, but that's what it is. Everything is loosey-goosey, and anything goes. And if you disagree with these powerful cultural forces, for some reason, you're demonized. <laughs> and you're called names, like hateful and bigot and other such names. Okay? And that's very intentional. I want you to know that. That's a strategy. That's a tactic to shame you and to shush you from expressing your Christian faith. This is America, isn't it? We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of religion. It's America. But there's nothing hateful about Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. We just disagree. And it should be okay to disagree. And we can do that in a loving way. You don't have to get all, jump up down stiff-legged and get all angry. You don't have to do that. We need to express the truth in love. That's what the Bible tells us. Speak the truth in love. Not so that we can feel right, but because so, that's what's best. That's what's best for the world. That's what's best for the world. Daryl Riley said it really well about three weeks ago. He said, the culture is now leading the church rather than the church leading the culture. Would you agree with that? Right now, I can name three mainline denominations. I won't, but I could name three mainline denominations that have folded like a house of cards and are following the culture, the morality and the values of the culture. Just in the last 10 years, it's stunning to me, the denomination I was a part of. It's stunning to me. But the Bible said, Revelation, that's, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. But listen, I want you to hear this. That doesn't mean the church is irrelevant. That doesn't mean the church is no longer relevant. What it means is the church is more relevant than ever. That's what it means. We're more relevant than ever. We, the church, bear the torch of the bear the torch of the apostles' teachings and Jesus' teachings and God's word. So, because of that, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to stimulate one another onto love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day draws near. I'm going to close my message today by reading the first ten verses in the second chapter of the Gospel of John. This is the first public miracle of Jesus. It's the wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's just 
10 verses. I'm going to use this to sort of close out my message. He says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and the disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone pots set aside for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. There was already some water in them. And Jesus said to them, fill the pots with water, so that they, they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw, out, um, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which, he had, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom, and he said, every man, has served, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What is the lesson for us from that? Because it's very basic, but extremely powerful when we put it into practice. Okay? Mary and Jesus and the disciples, they're at the wedding, and there's a problem. What was the problem? Yeah, they ran out of wine. Right? So Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus is like, really, Mom? <laughs> really? It's not our problem, right? My time has not yet come. Not really ready, feeling like a miracle today. I don't know what he said. But, but Mary knows Jesus better than anyone because she's the mom. Right, Terry? Right, she's the mom. She knows Jesus better than anyone. So she tells the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. No questions asked. Whatever he says to you, do it. I don't think she knew what Jesus was going to do, but I think she knew him well enough to know he was going to do something. He was going to do something. And she was sure of that. So Jesus tells the servants to fill the six pots with water. Okay? It's already probably 120 gallons in, but they filled them to the brim. They do what he says, and then he tells them to dip out a sample and take it to the head waiter. And they do what he says. When the head waiter tasted the water that had become wine, he was blown away. Okay? I think that's sayings from the 70s or 80s. I don't know. I can't remember. It means he really liked it. Doesn't mean there was a hurricane. He was blown away, right? Probably the best wine he'd ever tasted, right? It had to be. Jesus made it. It had to be great. And then he goes to the bridegroom, he tells the bridegroom, he says, most people serve the best wine first, and then after everybody gets snockered, the Greek word for, no, there is no Greek word for snockered. Okay. But they drank freely, I think that's what they said. After everybody's pretty ripped, okay, then you bring out the Ripple and the Mogan David, right? You bring out the bad stuff. But you have saved the best for last. So what is the lesson for us? Again, it's very simple, but powerful. Jesus can do extraordinary things with ordinary things and ordinary people like us, like you, like me, in our church. When we obey his commandments and he tells us to, you remember he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
So when we do that, when we obey his commandments, when we do what he says to do, like Mary said we should do, right? And live as he has called us to live. When we do that, we will see and experience things that we have never thought possible. Amazing things. Miraculous things. That's the lesson for us. At least part of it. So in summary, to wrap this up, whatever Jesus says, do it. Present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Don't hold anything back. Live for him as an act of worship, not obligation. Worship. And don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like the world. Don't fold like a house of cards. Don't give in. And don't believe what some people will say to you. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that the world can see God's desire for humanity in you, your life, your family, your kids, our church. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he promised and he's faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another onto love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, okay, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Live for him, follow him, and whatever he says to you, do it. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that um, you're with us, you're in us, and uh, we can trust you because you're faithful. Lord, you told us that if people hated you, you know, not to be surprised if they hate us, um, but help us to be always loving, um, to be caring but to speak the truth in love. Not out of concern of, of being right, but out of concern for other people and for the world because that's what you've taught us to do and to be compassionate. And so we pray that you would help us to really live it out, give it all, and hold nothing back. And we pray in your name, Jesus.